continue this morning what we've been doing the last couple Sundays, which is kind of looking, looking honestly at ourselves. We spent the summer looking at how we're to treat one another, right? The one anothering, right? We're to love one another, accept one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, admonish one another, right? So we spent the summer really asking, Father, how are your children supposed to get along? Right? And we learned biblically that there's some very clear commands about how us as God's children and God's family are supposed to one another, one another. And then in the fall, we ask this question, well, if his commands are really clear, I mean, they're very clear, right? Why don't we? Why don't we one another as Father commands us to? And, and last week, we saw this verse in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Ultimately, it's a heart issue. Everything in our heart, everything in our life, not just church attendance, everything flows from our heart. So it's a heart issue. And, and last week, we, we were reminded of our mission statement here at, at Ohio Valley Christian Fellowship. It says in your bulletin from the front, the bottom right, We are passionate followers of Jesus, Committing, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God, right? That's our mission statement. That's everything we do here. Every ministry, Sunday night, Monday night, youth, children, everything is centered, rooted in this mission, this vision that God has given us. We are passionate followers of Jesus, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus. You can go back. Go back. For the glory of God. Every word in there is intentional. And it's not, again, to be cool. It's not, again, to be, to be you know, oh, just because we have to. It's a heart issue. That is a heart statement. That's a heart statement. Especially that word passionate. Passionate. And last week, you know, we asked a question. Now you can ask the question, Garrett. Go ahead. Are we? We just flipped the first two words of that. Because the first, we'll go back to the mission statement there. It says we are. That's a declarative statement. Almost an assumption. We are. Now that's what we desire to be. That, that's a very forward-looking, that's a proactive, that's an intentional mission statement. We're not here just to do Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. No. Every, even our gathering at this very second, 1038, on September 23rd, 2018, has to do with this. We're here because we are passionate followers and we hope you will be too. We're committed to helping you. Right? But that's a declaration and also underlying there's an, there's an assumption. And sometimes we get numb to that. So last week, we flipped it. We, we just flipped the first two words. Instead of saying we are, we asked too many the question. Are we? Are we passionate followers of Jesus, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God? And we even made it more personal. Instead of are we, change the first two words to am I? Am I a passionate follower of Jesus, committed to helping others passionately follow Jesus for the glory of God. Am I? And I asked, and we did this exercise last Sunday, you don't have to, you know, this very, you don't have to volunteer from a scale of zero to ten on the passion scale. Well, how's your passion for Jesus? How's your passion? Right? First command is to love the Lord your God with your whole being. How, if you don't like the word passion, how's your love? How's your love for God with your whole being? I was thinking, what do you do, right? And we realize, okay, that's the thing of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love. So it's the Spirit. Supernatural love. But just ask yourself, am I on the passion scale? Where's your passion for Jesus? I'm not talking, okay, very important. I'm not talking passion for the church. I'm not talking passion for even scripture reading or prayer, the things of the church. I'm asking your passion for Jesus. Personally. Personally, right? Because the title of the sermon today is Passion is Personal. Passion is personal. So we, we come back to that. And we saw two weeks ago in Martha and Mary's relationship that Martha's priorities were wrong. And she was caught up and she was distracted and she got bent on, on what she thought was important up to the point where what? She blew up at who? Jesus and Mary. <coughs> so she was wrong. She wasn't right in her heart. 
And because she wasn't right in her heart, it affected her relationship. What we call vertically and horizontally. It was a heart issue. And Jesus said, you're wrong, Martha. You're concerned about many things. There's only one thing. And Mary chose it. Right? It was a heart issue. Last week, we looked at Matthew 6 about worrying. Okay, so how many of you were here last Sunday when we looked at worrying? How did you feel on the worry scale this week? Okay, I'll take that. I'll take the laugh. Is that, right? And we saw that, that the etymology, the origin of the word worry, is to strangle. That's, the word worry comes from strangling and choking. So if you're worrying, in Matthew 6, it says worry three times. The first time is stop worrying. And the other two times is where you start. Right? Stop worrying. And by the way, don't even start. Because your father will take care of your needs if you seek him first. If you're caught up in worrying, if you're focused on the things of the world, what they call an acting like a pagan or an unbeliever in that passage we looked at, you're strangled. You're choked. So if you're being strangled and choked, how do you think that's going to affect your relationship with God and with others? Right? So we spent the summer looking at pretty, pretty simple to understand commands of how we're supposed to one another. And now we realize that maybe, maybe the challenge to one another ain't is there's something going on in here. Maybe my priorities are wrong. Maybe I'm distracted by many things. Maybe I, maybe I'm actually looking at the necessities of my life as a non-believer, you know, and I'm not really trusting my father to take care of it. It's, it's a heart issue. And we're going to continue looking at this, this challenge of one another and what's going on in our life. Because, because Jesus says this in John 13. He says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. We, we saw this verse a lot over the summer. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. See the relationship there? His love relationship with me is supposed to go out this way. The vertical love relationship, the covenant relationship I have with Jesus, is supposed to now go out into one another. So if there's a problem this way, if I'm not really clear, if I'm not loving Jesus or receiving his love as I'm supposed to, then how's it going to go out this way the way it's supposed to? There's a connection. As I have loved you, I got you got to love the same way. You got to go out. Question, are you real clear on that love relationship you have with Jesus, right? Look at first John 4. We love because he first loved us, right? Love is a response. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. Woo! See the relationship? Direct relationship. I cannot say I love God and not love a brother or sister. And if I'm not loving a brother and sister, then i got to check my love for God. Amen? You see how it works? Right? So we hear these one another's, and sometimes if we're not careful, we just think, oh, it's more to do, and we go right past, well, check yourself. Check yourself. And your love for God. Your love for God. I love this quote from Joseph Stowell. True Christianity is always about the one who has loved us and given himself for us. When we drift from this motivation and begin to be good because we are Christians, we elevate self above the Savior. When that happens, the door swings wide open to arrogance and self-righteousness. What occurs is an eclipse of devotion. What's he saying? If we're just going to be good because we carry the name Christian, or we go to the well, and now it becomes duty and devotion, our duty and obligation, we've not even loving it anymore. So it's Ephesus in Revelation all year. I know your works, but you left your first love. Now we're just here on Sunday just because we're supposed to. It's not about love. It's not in response to God's love. When we sing songs, it's just because it's part of the roadmap. 
What is the definition of worship? True worship is response. It's response. You guys have seen Super Bowls or whatever sport you're into, uh, soccer, right? Goal! The Dodgers? Home run, right? Verse 3, 
Your minds may be somehow led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Single-minded devotion is what he's talking about. I love it in, this, in the New King James. Says, but I fear, lest somehow, as a serpent deceived Eve by, by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from what? The simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. The simplicity. And sometimes, without even realizing, we can be led astray. Our minds may be corrupted. We can be impacted from the simplicity, the single-minded, pure devotion to Jesus. And before you say, what happened to me, be very careful. Because it happened to Peter. That's why the book of Galatians was written. Right? If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 1. Paul is writing to the believers in Galatians. Look what he says to them. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, who are an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accept them, let them be under God's curse. What's going on that he is speaking so Powerfully to these believers, the false gospel has come in and it's impacting the church. And specifically, of all people, it's impacting Peter. Peter! Right? Peter, who walked with Jesus. <laughs> Peter, of all people, gets sucked into the false teaching. See, what happened was. Peter went to a city called Antioch. And when he arrived, he was single-minded and had pure devotion to Christ and the singleness of the gospel. There was no more division between Jew and Gentile. All the dietary laws, we, we're, they're all gone. We're just one in Christ. Amen? That's how he arrived at Antioch. And he was hanging out and eating with the Gentiles. And they were the, the Jewish dietary laws weren't even a concern. They had a potluck and no one wrote down what you couldn't, couldn't bring he was having fellowship. They were just a church united. And then something happened. Some people showed up. Galatians 2.12 says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Here it is. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Check this out. This is Peter. And all is good, simple devotion to the gospel. All is good. Some people walk through the door and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? This isn't right. And he got scared. And what did he do? Uh, hey guys, can't make dinner tonight. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry, and then the next one, I can't make it either. Peter starts to pull away. And he starts to relapse. Peter has a relapse. Back then in his old Jewish traditions. And here's the problem. His hypocrisy is impacting others. Even Barnabas' name. Peter, who was once all for one and one for all, has a relapse in the Jewish tradition and Jewish dietary laws and division between Jews and Gentiles, and he's bringing others with him. Peter was led astray from the pure devotion to Christ. Peter of all people. Now look what Paul does. Verse 14 says, When I saw that they were not acting in line, with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
We who are Jews by birth and not simple Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we might be faith justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Here's what, here's what Paul does. Peter, very publicly, is a hypocrite. So Paul very publicly says, you're a hypocrite. In front of everyone, says, you're wrong. You're wrong, buddy. Now it's become faith plus. It's now faith plus Pete, and you're wrong. And he does it publicly because what Peter was doing was having very public implications. And three times, three times, Paul says, Peter, it's faith in Christ Jesus. Peter, it's faith in Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Amen? That's the simple devotion to Christ. Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You're adding things to Jesus. We dealt with that in Jerusalem. What happened? You got scared. You got scared. What it says? He was afraid. Here's the thing. If you're going to have single-minded devotion to the gospel as it's preached and taught in the scriptures, you're going to have that courage. If you're going to be single-mindedly trusting in Jesus for your eternal destiny, that's going to take courage. That is going to take courage. Because you're going to come across people, A, who just want to kill you outright for your Jesus and then you're going to come across people, even your friends, even people at church, you're going to say, you know, you know, it's really Jesus plus. And then what are you going to do? Then what are you going to do? Because your heart's going to beat. And you're going to realize somebody's right and somebody's. And then it's going to take courage. Because you're going to have to decide what your convictions are and you're going to have to live with them. Which goes back to do you even know what they are? Are you even clear? Are you really clear on the simple, the, the simple pure devotion to Christ? Are you really clear about salvation? Are you really clear about how you get saved? Because I could say a few things here, launch some grenades theologically, and have a bunch of you reeling. Are you clear? Are you clear? What has, what, if anything in your walk with Jesus has ever you've been confronted with fear of, and having to really, really hammer down what you believe? Now, I've been, I, I think a large part of where I am in, in my faith in the last 28 years of walking with Jesus, there have been probably three or four significant moments in my life with Jesus, not as a pastor, as, with Jesus, where it has been a put up or shut up moment. What do you really believe about this, Lepama? I've shared with people before. Mission trip on the southern island in the Philippines. Oh yeah, I'm going to a school of evangelism. Woo-hoo, hey, we're going to go to the mission trip. Woo-hoo, we're going to the jungle area. Woo, and by the way, guys, just, you know, yeah, I happen to, you know, the, the people, the, the, the communist guerrillas, they don't like Americans and they really don't like Christians, but, you know, it's a mission trip. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. All woo-hoo-hoo-hoo until me and my buddy Sean are selected to go into the jungle on a two-hour jeep ride to do village visitations in the jungle, the very place they said is filled with communist realists who don't like Americans and Christians. And I will never forget that Jeep ride. You know? Oh, yeah, Sean Richie, you're going, you're going there. I'll never forget that day. It's just as if there's kind of mystery. Honestly, I'm scared to death. I've been a believer probably a year or two. And now I'm being sent into hostile territory, as described to the professors who sent us there. And I'll never forget, I don't want to talk to anyone. I found my place on this Jeep, and we went down this dirt road into the jungle. I'd been married a month. And suddenly, it wasn't about fun being mission trip, it wasn't school, and it wasn't academics. It got real, real quick. And I spent two hours really hashing out what I believe and why. Everything I could do 
And you know what it came down to after all of that? Jesus. Jesus. I, I don't know, ex-law student. I had spent my first two years, oh, let's get doctrine heavy. Let's study everything. Let's study Calvinism, Arminianism. Let's study all this stuff. And then I'm on a Jeep and going to hostile territory. And for two hours, all I could think was, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, all about you. Jesus, I put my faith in you. Your finished work. Death, resurrection. <laughs> I mean, I must have called out Jesus. I'm just talking to Jesus the whole time. Because when it's all said and done, all said and done, it's all about Jesus. Just faith in Jesus. Right? Even before that happened, I grew up in a Catholic family. Love my family to death. We're Filipino. 80% of the Philippines is Roman Catholic. There came a place where I had to tell mom and dad that I had become a born-again evangelical Christian and was no longer going to Roman Catholic Mass, which I had did for my entire life, religiously. I was scared to death. Scared to death. Because to do that in the, in the Filipino tradition is to turn your back on the culture. I lived that in San Diego. This wasn't, this wasn't happening down in This was done in San Diego. I, I had to deal with this. The reaction, not just, not just, of my family who received it well, but my friends that I grew up with. And I kid you not, I kid you not, this just happened last year. One of my high school friends, you know, I was going to San Diego, said, hey, there's some of us going to a restaurant for dinner. Let, why don't you come? I go. And I already told you before, high school reunions. Awkward, right? Because you do what? You do what? <laughs> master. <laughs> you do what? Right? It's weird, right? Even to this day, one of my friends, <laughs> she comes up to me, says, hey, she happens to be one of the Christian church. She says, oh, you know what? My mom told me. And her mom is, you know, St. Peter's my mom. Just, my mom told me you're not a Catholic anymore. <laughs> I'm 52 and still getting the guilt thrown at me. We couldn't pay the debt. 
Nothing we can do to earn it, not by works. God's grace, God did something in his love, his grace, his mercy. It was unearned. No merit at all. Now that's tough for some of us here who grew up very performance merit driven. You have a hard time with grace. Because somehow or another, people have to earn their way. You feel better earning your way. You don't like to admit there's nothing you could do. You don't want to admit, like I said, you're busted. How many of you have a hard time receiving a gift? Just a hard time. How many of you have ever received a gift and you quietly think of how you're going to pay them back? You receive a gift and not only not paying back financially, but okay, next, I got it. Next one's on me. Once you do that to a gift, it's no longer a gift. Now it's an obligation. You just messed up the gift. God's grace is unmerited favor. Received for those who are helpless and hopeless and could give nothing in return. Don't even try. Once you try, and we spend a whole lot of time, weeks and weeks on grace. Once you try to pay back God for his grace, you just change grace into something else. Grace is unmerited favor, which is simply to be received. By faith in Jesus. You receive it by faith in Jesus. That's grace. Unmerited honor. I love this quote. Grace in simple terms is God's unmerited favor and supernatural enablement and empowerment for salvation and for daily sanctification. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is what every man needs, what none can earn. And what God alone can and does freely give. Woo! Grace is tough in the United States. Because we're very performance, merit driven. No free lunch! Huh? I don't need help. I don't need help. I'm self sufficient. I don't need a handout. Well, spiritually, you need a whole lot more than a handout. Spiritually, you are broke, busted, and destitute. And you're at the bottom of the barrel. And there's nothing you can do spiritually but do this. That's what the Bible says. That's grace. If you, if, you get, if you get to the bottom of the barrel and you're like this, helpless, then you start to understand grace. Then you start to really understand God's grace. Right? We are saved by grace. Shelf like an academic book. 
Okay, that's great doctrine. That's a great principle. Got it. Check mark. I understand it. Titus 2.11 is a game changer. Because it says, the grace of God has appeared. Who is he talking about? Jesus! Grace goes from doctrine to a person. And through Jesus, salvation is offered to all people. This is when it gets personal. There's the doctrine of grace, but you don't. The more important thing is the doctrine of grace points to the person of grace. Amen? Gotta get that. The doctrine of grace points to the person of grace. The person of grace. You cannot skip that. You cannot skip that. Romans 3. All are justified freely by His grace through the, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now this verse gives it up. Who is this grace person? And all are justified freely by His grace, God's grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have what? Faith who? In Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the manifestation of God's grace. That's why we are passionate followers of Jesus. We are not passionate followers of sound doctrine. We are passionate followers of Jesus. Now, sound doctrine points us to Jesus. The Word of God points us to every page in here. Because the whole theme of this is pointing to Jesus. Some people miss that. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Right? So let's do a relationship then. Because how many of you have heard, well, you're saved by grace through faith? Right? So what's the relationship then between grace and faith? If it's the gospel of grace, and we're saved by grace, and grace is Jesus, what's the, then where's faith? How does faith come into play? Right? Acts 16. There's a story of Paul and Silas in prison. And something supernatural happens. There's a violent earthquake. All the prison doors open. The jailer wakes up, right? He's ready to kill himself. He thinks the prisoner escaped. And Paul shouts, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! Right? We're all here! The jailer says, uh, The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And here we go. Acts 16, verse 30, 31. He then brought them out. This is the jailer talking to Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs! What must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Isn't that the question of all questions? That is the question of all questions. That, that's the eternal question. What must I do to be saved? That is the question that you need to answer for yourself, and then you need to be able to answer for everyone else who asks you. That's what it all boils down to. What must I do to be saved? Or make it more personal, am I? Am I? I was in law school uh, after I graduated from UCLA, and I'm doing a law student. I'm being a law student. I'm volunteering with the high school ministry, and God's working on my heart, working with kids, sharing the gospel, discipling them. I'm growing as a young believer, and suddenly it hits me. Wait. And I remember this conversation I had with my wife. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do this, right? I'm like, okay, so I believe I had settled the issue of the authority of Scripture and the Scripture. So I'm not going to do this. This is the only belief. I'm like, okay, so let me get this right. The Bible says there's a heaven and a hell. Yeah. And that's all for all eternity. Yeah. And there's bad news and good news. And the good news is Jesus is it. Yeah. And I remember saying this to my wife. She doesn't even probably remember this. And this, this 
was where I knew God was charging me away from law. And I said this. I said, okay, I got all the day. So what else matters? What else matters then? If every human being, if everyone in this room and everyone in this community is a soul that's going to live forever in one of two places, and God has revealed the good news, the grace of God through Jesus, in my conviction, then what else matters? <laughs> what else really matters? Because 80, 90, 100 years on this planet in light of eternity is nothing. And that's where I charted a course away from law. I came off of law school, and I'm like, no, this is, I don't do about what matters. Eternal issues. The jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe. Look at the answer. Here's their answer. Put it back up here. Look at their answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. One, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine. Ten words. He gave a ten-word answer to the most profound, important, eternal question on the planet. <laughs> he summarizes it. He summarizes it in ten words. It's like that time I was in San Diego running around trying to invite uh, homeless people to get on our school bus to go to our church because we were doing haircuts and food and new clothes and we would go to San Diego, downtown San Diego and me and my buddy would jump off and go, hey, you want to come, you want to come, you want to come? And I was out there and I said, hey, man, you want to come? We'll jump on the bus, we'll take you up to Claremont, we'll get you all back, there's food, there's clothing, we'll help you do resumes, da, 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 da. And he just looked at me and said, how do I become a Christian? <laughs> and I'm on the clock because I'm already late getting back to the bus. I did not have time I did not have time to... <laughs> I had like 30 seconds. And I gave them 30 seconds. The gospel in 30 seconds. And I prayed with them, and then I don't know what happened. But I can't. That's not for me to know. I was faithful in that moment. What would you do? Today, if you had 30 seconds, and someone says, how do you become a Christian? I heard you don't go well. How do you become a Christian? And you had 30 seconds. What would you say in 30 seconds? Okay, let's, do, let's use the Apostle Paul. What would you say in ten words? Hopefully, what he said. <laughs> if you were given ten words to answer the most important question in the universe, ten words, what would you say? Hint, hint, just say that. <laughs> now the question is, what does that even mean? Because that's a summary. He had to be very, very concise. The word believe is synonymous with faith. Which I have to understand, what is biblical faith? Biblical faith has three parts. Three parts. There's knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge, data, learning the facts. There's agreement, assent to that. And that's where most people stop. You believe all the right stuff. And you even agree with the right stuff. You've acquired it, and you agree. I must have faith in it. To a certain degree, but that's not biblical faith. You're missing. You're missing the key. Because look at what um, James 2 James 2 says. You believe that there is one God? Good! Even the demons believe that and shudder. You know who some of the best theologians are? Demons. A theologian is someone who just studies the things of God. Doesn't mean they're saved. The devil and the demons? I have a feeling they know this far better than us. What happened when Jesus came upon demons, demon-possessed people? Repeatedly. I know who you are! Shh! <laughs> the demons are phenomenal theologians. They know it. They even agree with it. I know who you are. What are they missing? Are they saved? What's the third element of biblical faith? Trust. Commitment. I understand it, I agree, and I trust my eternity upon I stake my eternity. I am all in. I'm committed. 
No turning back. But most people agree and accept. Because that's safe. Or because you just never heard. I don't want to be careful. Story is told of, of a great type of walker called the Great Blondine. 1859, springs a rope across Niagara Falls. Walks back and forth and back and forth. Huge crowds gather, huge crowds gather, right? Walks across on stilts. He took a chair and a stove, cooked an omelet. I don't know how he did that, but he did it. <laughs> Carried his manager across on his big back, big back across Niagara Falls. On one occasion, he asked the chair spectators if he could push a man sitting in a wheelbarrow. A mighty world crew! Yeah, you can push a man across on a wheelbarrow! Yeah! Ooh, who's seen you do all that? Sir, you think I could carry you in the wheelbarrow? Yes, of course! Get in. <laughs> Agreement? Assent? No trust. Agreement? Assent? Trust. Trust? Jesus? Because that's what it points to. Right? Story of the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. I love this. Mark 5. A woman was there being subject to bleeding for 12 years. She suffered a great deal and didn't care many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. Do you see the example, the beautiful example? There's Jesus, I've heard about him. I gotta get there, I gotta get there. There's the ascent. And then what does she do? The trust. The trust. She actually acted. She touched him. And then she freaked out. Because she was like, don't touch me. <laughs> and she freaks out. Me? Said your faith has made you well. What was her faith made up of? Knowledge of Jesus. She believed and agreed that she needed to touch him. And then what did she do? Actually touch him. As scared and as feeble and as Intimidated as she was in the midst of all these people, I don't even know what it looked like she did. But that's the glorious thing about faith. The glorious thing about faith, you guys, is that it's centered on the object of our faith, not the measure of mine. The glorious thing about God's grace is that when I put my faith in Jesus, it's all about Jesus and God's riches and God's grace, not how much faith I have. Because this woman comes up, she touches Jesus, and the Bible says she's healed what? Completely. Completely. Her weak, feeble faith that she exercised just by acting on it results in a full healing. I love that. I love that. Because that reminds me that the gospel of grace is really about God's grace. Amen? That's where I rest. That's where I find peace. That's where I find joy. That my faith accesses God's grace. See, here's the thing. Romans 5.1 says this. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by what? Faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 3 12, because of Christ and our faith in Him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What have we learned about faith? Faith has to have an object. Who is the object of our faith? Jesus is the object of our faith. Here's where most of us get stuck. Not most, maybe many of us. 
If I define faith as I acquire and I agree and I stop there, who then becomes the object of my faith? Me. And if I ask you if you're saved or if you're a believer, and you say, and you say yes, and I say why, you say, because I have faith, and I say, where's your faith placed? Well, me, because I believe. That's a misplaced object. The object of our faith is Jesus. We have faith in Him. What's the relationship between faith and grace? When I have faith in Jesus, here's it's so important. When I put my faith in Jesus, the Bible says, I access all of God's grace. I access all of God's grace. It's kind of like this. You have a hose attached to this big source called God's riches. The hose is my faith in Jesus. God's riches are poured out. Faith is the conduit. Faith is the instrument that accesses me to God's grace. Salvation is rooted in God's grace. My faith in Jesus, not in myself, my faith in Jesus accesses God's grace because I become a child of God. You've got to settle the issue. Where, who is the object of your faith? Who is the object of your faith? Sometimes the object of our faith is our serving, our doing. Who are you trusting for salvation? Because the jailer said, how can I be saved? And then Paul said, have faith in Jesus. You see? The Apostle Paul pointed the jailer to one person for salvation. Jesus. And he said, trust. Trust Jesus. Right? And this is why it's so personal. Why it gets out of doctrine and da, 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 and it's all about Jesus, faith in Jesus. And, and why does this matter? As pastorally, and I share with you my heart and, and what God did to, to kind of steer me into full-time ministry. Matthew 7 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did you not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I would tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That is a heavy passage for a pastor. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we go to the well on Sunday? Didn't we go to men's group Sunday night? Weren't we there Monday night for women? Didn't we go to Mexico? I did faithfully. I read my Bible. I prayed. I never knew you. Away from me. I, 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 this verse weighs so heavy on me for 28 years of full-time ministry. And I, I pray, Lord, let me get this right. Let me just make it so clear so concise and, and never stray away from the faith in Jesus. <laughs> because I never want anyone on one of my ministries to hear these words. I never, it wasn't like I knew you for a while and then, who are you again? He never knew them. And yet they were deceived. They prophesied in his name. They drove out demons. They were performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And then for all eternity he says, I never knew you. That word new is personal, ginosko. It's, it's, it's intimacy. I never had a personal relationship with you. That's what Jesus has said to these people. You did all this stuff in my name, sure. Yeah, you came to the well, you gave, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. Hopefully, everything leading up to this verse helps you to understand today how to have a personal relationship. Them. Put your faith in Jesus. 
and through faith in Jesus, celebrate God's grace and access appropriate his riches. Amen? Yes. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, right? So if the logical question would be, what's the Father's will then? If Jesus says the only one who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven is the one who's doing my Father's will, look at John 6, 40. For my Father's will is this, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So what's the Father's will? Have faith in Jesus. It's right there. This is my Father's will. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. Faith in Jesus. Gospel of grace. Jesus is grace. Put your faith in Jesus. Appropriate access. All of God's riches. All of God's riches. Right? Back in the early 90s, uh, tracks were really, I don't know, some generationally little booklets of paper called tracks were used to show the gospel. One of the most famous ones, popular ones, was called the Four Spiritual Laws. Anyone? Right? Four Spiritual Laws had a little diagram. Go ahead. This was the diagram. Kind of blurry, but here's sinful man, holy gods on the other side. There's this impassable chasm, right? Good works won't do it, religion won't do it. More, be a good moral person won't get you across the chasm. That was meant to, that was the bad news, right? And then you turn the page, and then here's the good news that Jesus Christ bridges the gap, right? Nothing wrong with that, except with the fact that you limit that to knowledge about Jesus. A lot of people are, are concerned. A lot of people saw that, agreed with it, but never trusted Jesus. The question is, did they really trust Jesus? That's a concern. That's a heart issue between them and the Lord. I'm not casting any doubt. That's always a concern. Always a concern. And that's where the Spirit has to move. When I was thinking of this, I, I, I thought of that a little bit differently. And I said, there's a chasm. All have sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's a holy God. How are we going to bridge that? Sure, Jesus. Right? John 14, 6 is the way, the truth. Even truth is, is a person. Truth is a person. Who is truth? Jesus. It's faith in truth. It's Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the life. He is the truth. Right? Jesus, truth is person. Grace is a person. Right? Here's what I want to do to bring us back to the simplicity of pure devotion to Christ. We're sin, all have sin, all short of the Lord God. We all, I'm assuming, one from heaven, because that's what matters, right? So Jesus says, Jesus says, Do you really believe I can get you from here to there? Because there's a narrow road. And there ain't room for both of us. I gotta take you there. Do you really trust that I can get you across that chasm to a holy God? And if you say yes, this morning he's saying, get in. Get in. Go from that step of acquisition and ascent to full trust. Get in with Jesus. Wherever you're at, if you understand, if you're like the woman who just touched Jesus' robe and kind of flinched, ah, get in! That's the beauty of it. Salvation is offered to everyone. Amen? Whether you're brand new today or you've been in church for 50 years and you're finally going, I finally get this. Get in today. Get in today. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that it is the gospel of grace. Thank you that faith in Jesus allows us to access and appropriate all of your riches. All of your riches. And so, Lord, we started in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul was concerned 
that the believers' minds were being corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And when all this is done this morning, I pray that we come back to the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity of faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. And when we come back to the simplicity of receiving your grace. Your grace. Your unearned merit, your unearned favor. Your love demonstrated for us. Descending in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we just come back to that simplicity. And trust. Get in the wheelbarrow and trust. 100%, all in. Nothing held back. Not hedging our bets. All in one.